Tonight, we are going to continue the discussion we started this morning of the narrow-minded Messiah with a sermon entitled, strangely enough, The Narrow-Minded Messiah Part 2. <laughs> In this morning's lesson, we discussed the biblical definition of as well as what a wonderful and God-glorifying compliment it is to be recognized and referred to as narrow-minded. We talked about this definition from God's word by combining the truths that we find in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, with the truths that we find in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and then sprinkling in whatever parts of Merriam-Webster's and the world's definition were thereafter appropriate and fitting. And hence, we came up with this definition based on those two texts, as well as, as I said, a little bit from the dictionary. Narrow-minded by the biblical definition, where the term itself does not exactly specifically occur, but the words in it do, having our minds so completely set on things above including the narrow gate and difficult way which leads to heaven or leads above, that we absolutely will not accept any opinion, belief, behavior, etc., that is unscriptural or in any way different from what Almighty God has said in his word, period. We also mentioned how this morning in the language of the modern-day Ashdodian world around us, what is referred to as narrow-mindedness is referred to by God in the biblical language of the Bible is love. Is it love for God to follow his word exactly? Yeah, it's defined as love. It is, designed, it is defined as faithfulness and obedience. In other words, it is defined as being a follower following in the very footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because keeping our mind on this biblical definition, again I say to you, that there has never been another being who has ever walked this planet who was more completely devoted to being narrow-minded than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, again by this definition. Jesus' exclusive, one and only, consummate focus was always the narrow way that leads to salvation, always. It's what he lived, it's what he taught, it's what he was all about. He is the way, the way, the truth, and the life, as he said. So, as Jesus talked, he told us about that narrow way that leads up to heaven where his father is for those who would, similar to him, have that one single-minded focus and devotion. For those who have been raised with Christ, as we talked about this morning from Colossians 3, 1 and 2, those people who would set their minds to traveling to heaven upon that path. That Jesus was completely devoted to this, seen throughout the scriptures, but it's something that Jesus repeatedly talked about and confirmed a number of times throughout his earthly ministry, saying in places like John 4 and verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
My food, Jesus said, is exactly that, to keep on the narrow things of God. What sustained him? Literally, he lived for that purpose. And, and no opinion or belief or behavior or contrary into the word of God thing was going to derail him from that path. In John chapter 5 and verse 30, he said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Not only did Jesus not follow his own will, but, but was consumed with the will of the Father. Not only did he not follow his own will, but he also would not follow the will of the people. Do you remember when the people wanted to make him a king? Jesus would have none of it. He would not follow the will of the people. He would not follow the will of human wisdom or wishes or any such thing. Why? Because none of those things can save you. Human reasoning can't save you. Self-help books can't save you. Men's opinions can't save you. Nothing else can save you but what is written in this book. And that's why Jesus was completely narrow-minded in his focus on God. He was very exclusive. In John chapter 6 and verse 38, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Not the will of anybody else, not their opinions or beliefs or behaviors that are contrary to it. Turn to me in your Bibles, though, tonight to John chapter 12, if you would. I want to show you one more. In John chapter 12, I want to show you just how single-minded and narrow-minded Jesus was. When it came to his devotion to speaking only what and as the Father in heaven had told him to speak. You'll recall in John chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 48 through 50 here in just a moment. you recall in, in John chapter 12 that... Jesus was talking about those who, if you will, were more worldly-minded and needed to be more narrow-minded. And he says in John 12, 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Wow. Really, Jesus? All it's going to take to be lost is to reject your word? That's pretty narrow-minded. That's pretty exclusive that, that we're going to be judged just by your words. We're not going to be judged by our feelings. We're not going to be judged by our convictions that, that are contrary to what your word says. We're going to be judged by your word. Are you saying that if I don't believe and follow what you said that I'm law? Yep, that's exactly what he meant. Yep, that is exactly what he said. There was one way. It was his way. He has all authority. Well, what about this? Dare I say this dirty word in church? I do. What if speaking the truth and the language of God, here comes that dirty word, at least in the world, offends somebody? What if speaking the truth offends somebody? 
Because you see, offending somebody today is the unforgivable sin out there in the world. That is the unforgivable sin, offending someone. In our world today, adultery, sexual immorality, sleeping around before you married is seen as a routine part of everyday life in modern day America. It's all over the place. The abomination of homosexuality is relentlessly encouraged and sickeningly celebrated at every turn in this country as well. The senseless slaughter of pre-born people created in the image of God has been protected under law for the past half century here in America to the tune of 63 million casualties during that same time period. But those ain't bad. You really want to know what's bad out there in the world according to their language? You really want to know what is the unpardonable sin, the hardcore, unforgivable sin? Here it is. Go offend somebody. Just go and try to tell somebody what the Lord Jesus Christ told the highly religious group he was addressing in Matthew 22 and verse 29. When Jesus Christ said, according to the English Standard Version, and I quote, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, unquote. Well, wait a minute. Jesus is God and God is love and God said that? Uh-huh. Why did he say that? He said it because he loved them. Because they were wrong and they needed to be made right. Question. Have you ever stopped and read through the four Gospels with the specific purpose of saying how many times Jesus when he opened his mouth, offended somebody. You need to try that sometime. It seems like just about every time he opened his mouth to preach or teach, he offended someone. Everybody from his own disciples to the religious wrong. We call the religious right today. Well, we'll call them the religious wrong and the Pharisees. Now, I want you to understand what I'm about to say very, very, very clearly. Jesus did not, did not. I've got it right here, right here in my, my notes. Jesus didn't do that to offend. Jesus never tried to purposely offend, if you will. Needlessly, I should say. Jesus didn't do it to offend, but God's word is naturally offensive by design to those who are headed in the wrong direction. I want you to think about that. Jesus didn't do it to offend, but God's truth is naturally offensive by design to those who are headed in the wrong direction. Jesus knew this. I want to have you look at just a few times where the narrow-minded Messiah opened his mouth to teach. I want you to see how he constantly offended people. You know why he did it? Because he loved them. Because they were lost. They were going the wrong way. And Jesus knew that he had to turn them around. But in order, in order to turn them around, he had to point out to them that they were headed in the wrong direction. Listen, 
If somebody's going to turn you around and you're going the wrong direction, the first thing that you've got to figure out is you're going in the wrong direction. And if you don't know that and nobody tells you that, you're not going to correct that. And, and that's what Jesus did. Constantly. Constantly. Seems like every time he opened his mouth. For example, we all love the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you do. Let me speak for me. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. First sermon we have a record of of Jesus teaching and Jesus starts right in with the Beatitudes. We love the Beatitudes, right? Uh, beautiful teaching. And Jesus goes through this lesson and, and, and he tells it like it is and he teaches how to pray and he, and he goes through the, and just the wisdom and, and just, I mean, we could spend years studying the Sermon on the Mount. It's beautiful, but I'll tell you what, it wasn't beautiful to everybody. Don't you know that when Jesus got to Matthew 5 in verse 20, it was heavily offensive to the Jewish leadership. Remember what he said there? Rather than me quote it to you, well, I can quote it. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? If you were a scribe or Pharisee in the audience, would you love to hear that come out of his mouth? When Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying? They ain't going. Because their righteousness is not enough to get them there. And unless you are more righteous than these people who think they're so self-righteous, you ain't going. Don't you know that had to have offended the scribes and the Pharisees? If I was a scribe or a Pharisee, I got to tell you right up front, I'd have been offended. Somebody comes up to you and says, you ain't going to heaven and I can prove it. I'd go, whoa, dude, you and I aren't reading the same Bible. Had to have offended them. Let me give you another occasion. Turn with me um, in your Bibles to Luke 6. Uh, I'm sorry, Luke 4. In Luke chapter 4, very familiar story, verses 16 and following. Jesus comes to Nazareth, his hometown where he'd been brought up, goes into the synagogue, on the Sabbath, stands up and reads, and, and they just, oh, they're just falling all over themselves to praise him. What, you know, look at how, how gracious things, these gracious words that he's speaking, and they marveled in verse 22, and, and, and just, oh, this Jesus, he is just, wow, local boy made good. And then Jesus tells them the truth. He says, this is how this applies. You guys are wrong. Not you guys specifically, but but as as a as a um, as a as a people, he said, "This is your history." And and I, isn't it amazing how fickle people are? Really, they love him. They just think he's you know the cat's meow. He's all there is, just marveling, just great guy. And all of a sudden, all he does is is he truthfully and honestly tells them part of their history and applies the word to them. And look at what happens, verse twenty-eight. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, rose up and thrust him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him over the cliff. We, we've talked for a long time in the adult class about the trial of Jesus, how they broke all the rules. These guys didn't even bother with the trial. They already sling him off the cliff that day, that moment right there. Well, you know, 20 minutes ago, they tell him about what a great guy he is. But when he told them how the truth applied to them from the scriptures, man, they were offended. They were ready to kill, literally ready to kill. 
Mm. Yeah, he offended him. Turn to me to John 6. Now, again, Jesus wasn't trying to needlessly offend anybody. Jesus didn't get any great thrill out of needlessly offending people. But the word of God is naturally offensive to those who don't want to follow God. It, it just is. It, it's that way by design. That's the way it's put together. That's the way it's built. That's the purpose of it. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 51, look what we have again. Familiar examples. Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, Jesus makes a pretty narrow-minded, pretty exclusive, pretty one-of-a-kind statement when he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life came down. I'm the fulfillment of that text right there. That's me. Was Jesus being arrogant? No. Jesus being honest. That's what he was being. Was, was Jesus just taking great glee and joy and offense? No. He just being honest. He just narrow-minded. He just sticking with the word of God. He knew who he was. And he told them simply who he was. He told them the truth. But then we get up to verse 60 after a little discussion. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, here comes our word, does this offend you? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. The answer is yes. Jesus says, does this offend you? The word offend is in the Bible. Jesus used it. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who don't believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and, and would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many, many of his disciples went back, walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, you want to go too? I want you to notice something here in this text. Please notice that the perfectly sinless and narrow-minded Messiah shows no sign of remorse or guilt because of the truth of God that he had just taught them. He shows no sign of remorse or guilt. He doesn't, he doesn't turn to the other disciples and say, oh, I can't believe that I said that and they did that. They did. No, he says, you want to go too? He showed no sign of remorse or guilt because of the truth he had just taught them, which had offended many of them. In fact, offended so many of them that they left Jesus and this little group of disciples and went elsewhere. He does, he does not go on either to change or to compromise or water down the truth in order to somehow make it more palatable to those who were not willing to try to understand and accept it. What did he do? He told them the truth in the language of God, exactly as God said, so that if they would hear it, if they would just listen, if they try to understand, it could turn them around and set them on that narrow path to heaven. You see, Jesus' mission and his mindset 
His mind was set on things above, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. His mission and his mindset, the same as ours must be as his people, is to get those who are lost, to get those who are headed in the wrong direction, turned around and headed back up the straight and narrow and difficult path to heaven. Our mission is not to simply make people feel better about what they're doing and the truth that they are rejecting. Listen, that's not our mission. Our mission is not to, to just appease. Our mission is not to, to just make people feel good in whatever religious error that they're stuck in. That's not Jesus. Listen, I'll tell you, if you want to know whose mission that is, that's Satan's mission, not ours. It is Satan's mission to make everybody feel good in whatever error that they're in, not ours. And Satan and those whom he has deceived about where they're going in our world today continue to do everything in their power to try to convince Christians who are going by the word and language of God that the worst possible thing that you and I can do on this planet is to offend somebody by seeking to correct them with the word and the language of the living God who's headed in the wrong direction and going to spend eternity not with God. We live in a time where the world is trying to tell us you can't call sin, sin. You can't call wrong, wrong. You can't lovingly, 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 capital letters emboldened, underlined, highlighted, lovingly, you can't even lovingly seek to correct anyone who is committing sin because the moment you do, you're narrow-minded, you're a bigot, you're judgmental, you're self-righteous, you're a hypocrite, and on and on and on. That's Satan at work. Brother Alan Hires wrote in The Spiritual Sword way back in October of 2004 the following few lines. Listen to this. The prevailing philosophy of postmodernism suggests that no one is really wrong in religion. Whatever one believes is right for him. There is no inclination to debate that one is right and the other is wrong. There is a general toleration for all points of view in today's world. There is a general toleration for all religious points of view. No religion's really wrong. If you believe that it's right for you, it's right for you. That, that, that's kind of the way the world goes at this. Really? Really? <coughs> really. Really. And I don't mean to be mean or ugly or hateful or judgmental. I don't. I don't. But I can assure you, based upon the word and language of God, that these two signs will not be posted on the pearly gate at the other end of the narrow way that leads to eternal life. I'll tell you why I do say that. I say that because neither the Lord Jesus Christ nor his first century disciples had any such thing as a general toleration for all points of view. I don't mean to offend with that statement. I, I Honestly, I don't. I wish you could see my heart. I don't. But it's just a plain, simple fact. 
neither Jesus Christ nor his disciples had a general toleration for all points of view when it came to the truth of the word of God. Quite to the contrary, in fact. They could not and did not have a general toleration for all points of view because love and truth do not allow anybody to have that. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, love does not rejoice with iniquity. Love does not rejoice with anything but the truth, and Jesus told us God's word is truth. Remember what? Just let me make this point. Neither Jesus nor the apostles had a general toleration for all points of view. Let me prove it. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in the Galatian region? Let's talk about a general toleration for all points of view. Let's talk about appeasement. Ah. Turn to the book of Galatians with me, chapter 1. Was Paul a good servant of Christ? Yep. Start a lot of churches? Yep. Convert a lot of people with his teaching? Yep. Would you like to have started as many churches and taught as many people and had as much knowledge as Paul did? Paul didn't do it by compromising. He didn't do it because he had a general toleration for all points of view. I want you to look with me in verses 8 and 9. I want you to look at what Paul says in Galatians 1. He said, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Does that sound like he's very tolerant? Paul says, I don't care if it's one of us. I don't care if an angel comes right down and drops right through the roof and is standing right in front of you and tells you there's a different gospel. Let him be accursed. But Paul's not done. Paul says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. The word accursed is anathema, which means hopelessly and eternally condemned. I don't care if an angel comes down and teaches you something else other than the gospel that was taught in the first century. I don't care who they are. I don't care if they're, they're an angel from heaven. I don't care how many letters they got after their name. If they come down and teach you something different than what the Galatians had been taught in the first century, according to the word of God, let them be eternally and hopelessly condemned. Does that sound like toleration? Wow, Paul, that's pretty narrow-minded. Yup. Galatians 2, verse 11, while you're here. I'm going to read from the ESV. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Wait, 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 wait. Paul. Cephas, Peter, was, was an apostle of Jesus. Um... He'd been with Jesus for three and a half years, Paul. He was, he was part of the inner circle. Uh, 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 Peter's the only man that walked on water like Jesus. He's the only other one to do that. This is who you're correcting, Paul. This is the man who saw Jesus transfigured before him. This is the man who saw Jesus raise the dead and even saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead himself. And you're telling him that he stood condemned? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Didn't matter who it was. Here's why. Because when you truly love somebody, 
and they are headed the wrong way and they stand condemned. They stand headed for hell instead of heaven. True love is not going to tolerate the error. It's going to try with all the love in its heart. Now they may not, they may find that as a little bit offensive to begin with, but that's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. As a matter of fact, the toleration for all points of view. Do you remember Galatians 5, 7 through 12? Turn over there if you don't. I'm going to read again from the ESV. Galatians 5, 7 through 12. Do you want to talk about a spirit of toleration? He says, you were running well. What hindered you from obeying the truth? Notice it's singular. There's one. That excludes all the rest. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole love, the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. How many of you have ever received a letter from somebody that says, I trust that you will take no other view than mine? Paul, really? Dude, you're kidding. Do you really, are you that self-righteous? No, I'm not that self-righteous, but I know what scripture says. Paul, that, that's kind of that's narrow-minded. Yeah, uh-huh, it is, yeah. No other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Whoever that was that would bear the penalty is somebody of a different viewpoint than the Apostle Paul had. Paul said he's wrong. Going on to even say in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's not real tolerant, Paul. No. Remember what he wrote in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6? Sure you do. There's one body. He's already told you in, in Ephesians 1, 22, and 3, the body's the church. It says in chapter 4, verse 4, there's one body, there's one church. Well, wait a minute, Paul. What about this group and this group? And then he said, no, he said, there's one. There's one body, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Whoa, Paul, one baptism? Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Paul. I know of people that were, that were baptized as a baby, and, and I know of people that were this way and that way, and, and for this reason, it, Paul says, he's not holding his finger up in the wind to see which way the wind's blowing. He's real sure which way the wind's blowing. He said, there's one, there's one baptism. Well, Paul, that's pretty exclusive, uh-huh. Yeah, it is. True love does not allow one to live in hell-bound error even if it offends them to tell them the truth in order to try to turn them around and save them. True love simply cannot sit by and tolerate an unscriptural point of view that will send another to their eternal destruction. Do we understand, do, do we understand that God's word was designed by God? I, I think sometimes we lose sight of this. God's word was designed by God to divide separate, pierce, offend, and cut to the core those who are lost in sin. How many times do we see the word of God referred to as a sword? Do you know what swords do? They cut. How many times? Uh, God's word is there to offend and pierce hearts. Where would they have been on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 if they were not cut to the heart? You know what they'd been? They'd been lost. But because they were cut to the heart, because it got to them, because it got in there, they became Christians, and on that day, 3,000 believed his word and were baptized. But if they hadn't been cut to the heart by the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 6, that he was using, it wouldn't happen. Let me give you, you know, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of places that, 
that tell us God's word was designed by God to divide, separate, pierce, offend, and cut to the core those lost in sin. Let me give you a list. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Acts 2.37, we just talked about how they were cut to the heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, where he said, there must be divisions among you in order to see those which have got it right. Bad paraphrase. Ephesians 6, 17, it's called the sword of the spirit. Hebrews 4 and verse 12, God's word is living and sharper than any, uh, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God was designed by God to pierce, to cut, to help, to help those headed the wrong way see the right way. And that's always offensive to those who are headed the wrong way, or at least those who want to keep going that way. Turn with me to Matthew 15, would you please? I'm not condoning offending people for no reason. I'm not condoning offending people just for the sake of offending them and nothing else. I'm not, I'm not. Please don't go home and say, well, Doug's I gotta be offensive to everybody. No, 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 no. What I am saying is this, we gotta understand that when we tell people the truth, it's going to offend some people. And the only way to, to not offend a lot of people is to not tell them the truth. And, and that's not an option for us. In Matthew chapter 15, because of time, I won't read it, and because of familiarity, but we know the story there. They're transgressing the commandment of God, uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 14. And, and Jesus calls them hypocrites in verse 7. And then when we get down to t verse 10, it says, When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. And his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended? What would we say today? What would we say today? Did you know that so-and-so was offended when you told them the truth? How would we handle that? Let me ask a question. Did Jesus handle it perfectly? Uh-huh. Did Jesus handle it sinlessly? Yeah, well, what did Jesus do? Because, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, we know, because it says right here. But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. That's how Jesus handled it. Jesus offended so many people. Matthew 13, verse 57 says they were offended at him. John 8, verse 59 says they took up stones to throw at him. <laughs> and then I love John 10, 31. It says, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. I love, love the way John, well, they picked up stones to stone him later on. Well, they did it again. In Matthew 26, 4, Mark 14, 1. John 5.18 and John 7.1. It all tells us in one form or another, they were trying to kill him. They weren't trying to kill Jesus because he'd appeased them. They weren't trying to kill Jesus because he went along with their error. They were not trying to kill Jesus because he always agreed with them. They were seeking to kill him because of the greed within them. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was forever focused upon and always completely devoted to, if you want to argue this, nobody's going to, but Jesus was always focused on and completely devoted to the absolute, uncorrupted, always exclusive, often offensive 
and unchanging truth of the Word of God, which alone has the power to save men's souls. And oh, how that offended those who didn't want to accept it. Oh, well. See, it was worth it to save the few that would accept it and walk the narrow way with him. Jesus said in Matthew eleven six 6 and Luke seven twenty three, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Those who claim to love him as Lord but are offended by his words, commands, and example, according to Jesus, don't love him. John 14 and verse 15. Instead, those who have in mind the things of men rather than the things of God are an offense to Jesus. We talked about this this morning from Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, where he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, Jesus said, for you are not mindful of things of God, but the things of men. That is a bone-chilling statement, isn't it? Can you imagine? You spent all this time with Jesus, and you've done all of these things with Jesus, and you've seen all these things, and, and, you, and you just out of the love of your heart, you turn around and say, this will never happen to you. And he turns around and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Wow. Wow. But that's the way Jesus was and is. Very narrow-minded. we conclude this little two-part mini-series today, Jesus Christ was truly the narrow-minded Messiah out of pure love. Pure love. His mind was always on the things above and the narrow way that leads to those things. Jesus, in fact, loved so deeply and was so committed to being so narrow-minded, by our definition that was up there, that he would die. In fact, he did die before he would compromise the plain and simple plan and word and language of God. He would die before he would compromise that, and he did. Today, the term narrow-minded is used as a term of derision and criticism in our language of modern Ashdod culture. But according to scripture, it is a badge of honor, if you will. It is a testament to one's devotion to God, and it is a recognition of one's resemblance to their Redeemer. The world out there today tells us we must be open, tolerant, broad-minded. I don't want to be broad-minded. You know why I don't want to be broad-minded? Because if I'm broad-minded, then that means my mind is on the broad way that leads to and I don't want to do that. I want to be narrow-minded. I want my mind on the narrow way that leads to salvation. Brother Roy Deaver once wrote this, quote, as we contemplate the fact of and the evidences of our Lord's narrow-mindedness, may we be impressed with the obligation and the privilege that we have of being just like him. He lived to show us how to live. He exemplified the attitude we are to have, Philippians 2.5. We are instructed to follow in his footsteps, 2 Peter 2.21. May God help us to always have the faith, the knowledge, the conviction, and the courage to imitate the Lord in being 
narrow-minded, unquote. You know why that's such a blessed thing to do? Because it gives us confidence in the day of judgment. Did you know that? The Bible says in, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 17 that we can have confidence on the day of judgment if we are like he is while we're in the world. So tonight the stage is set. The lines are drawn. Choice is clear. Conviction or compromise. Truth or tolerance? Truth or consequences? Drawing near or falling away? Being as narrow-minded as we possibly can be or being broad-minded and traveling the Broadway? If you are a Christian already, compromise is out of the question. Falsehood is fatal but the word of God is survival. We can accept it and live it, or we can reject it and perish, but we cannot change it and survive. People have been trying to do that since Genesis chapter three and verse four, and always with the same fatal result. Tonight, if you need the prayers of the church, that you would be more narrow-minded, more devoted to the word of God and only doing, speaking Bible things in, in Bible ways and, and only doing what the Bible says and, and not tolerating any compromise. If you would be as narrow-minded as the Messiah, but, but you just need prayers, we'll pray for you. Churches of Christ teach that in order to be saved, there is one exclusive way. Do you know why the churches of Christ teach that there is one exclusive, narrow-minded, and one and only way to have your sins forgiven? I will tell you why. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, through the apostle Peter, gave the one exclusive, narrow-minded, one and only way to have your sins forgiven on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, where he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I believe it. You know what else I believe? I believe there's no other way than his way. Am I narrow-minded? I sure hope so, because if not, I need to repent. What do you need to do tonight to be right with God? Please make it known as we stand and sing. <laughs>